0: to another episode of the digital twin fan club podcast with me henry femby taylor today i am joined by uh, two fantastic and interesting and exciting uh, but unfortunately not at all controversial people isn't that right gentlemen please introduce yourselves martin we'll start with you
1: Hello, everybody. Pleasure to be here on a dank Friday morning, but we will fill you with joy and happiness. And Martin Geach, I am a technical director at Atkins Realis, new name, new vision. Uh, I have worked for the last eight years with clients across the information management and digital twin application space. um, And I think one of my most fun pieces of work that I've been able to deliver with clients in this sector and space was looking at the economic value of information management where we twinned up with KPMG um, for the CDBB uh, to look at the impact of all of the change that we've been having over the last number of years. So pleasure to be here Henry.
0: £7.53 per pound put in if I remember correctly from that paper when it came came across Perfect. the desk
1: we yeah. almost need a jingle to go with it don't we yeah
0: 753 doesn't uh chip off the tongue um so there is martin over there in the atkins realis corner fighting his the good fight and in uh next to him on my screen is jonathan please introduce yourself
2: Hi everyone, pleasure to be here as well. I'm John there I'm a senior technical fellow specializing in digital twins, um, broadly looking at how we actually get the connectivity so when data and information is presented, it means the same thing as somebody else. Um, similar to Martin, has been around in this space for probably sort of seven to eight years, um, leading client transformations, digital transformations, and just trying to unlock the value that we have with the technology and what it can provide now.
0: Awesome. So we all come from slightly different backgrounds and perspectives and that's the reason that I wanted to have this chat because digital twins means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and I'm not here to define digital twins again again because we could do that every day and get nowhere. What I thought would be really interesting to talk about was digital twins, some people say it's a technology, some people say it's not, but it's certainly a a way of using technology and a a vision of how we can achieve a better world by managing it more effectively, by understanding what's really going on inside it. But it does seem to tread on a few toes on the way there. It's not a very specific domain. You can't just turn on lots of digital twin technology. And I wondered what sort of other you know, maybe domains, disciplines, areas, sectors, you know, this is a complex space. Let's try and simplify it. What other approaches do you think that digital twins have overlap with?
1: It's a great, it's a great question. I don't want to go first every time, but I'm going to go first this time, if I'm allowed that's to, sp- John. That's the spirit. Permission. Very oh, this, gentlemanly of me. This Fundamentally, okay, here we are. Here comes the big hitter, uh, PLM, so call it lifecycle management. We are seeing it everywhere. Infrastructure play, currently three if not four four of the biggest portfolios that I support all have a a PLM configuration element as part of them. And that's relatively new into Mm. the infrastructure space. So, So
0: what is PLM? He said, Jordan, asking Jordan, a nice okay. question. So I, I'll, yeah, I'll go on, go on, John. You, you can tell us what what is PLM. Tell us what the acronym means. Tell us um, maybe a little bit about its history.
2: Yeah, so okay. PLM I'll is go. product lifecycle management. Uh, fundamentally, it's about managing products over its lifecycle and managing it as <laughs> the clues in the name. But it actually stems back from and um, product document management. So PDM is kind of the precursor, and that's and I'm, and I'm going to sort of, for any specialist here, ignore the butchering I do to try and simplify it for the general audience, but it's basically SharePoint or Google Drive, or it, it's ways of managing documents with version control. So it's not just sat on your hard drive It's a system that can manage permissions and manage who can access what over the lifecycle. So you can go back in history um, and say, well, actually two months ago, this was the status of this. So it, it enables the single source of truth, it enables bits of sign off, Um, and sort of authorizing it out to be released rather than just in draft. And and for engineering, it's also then looking at CAD, and it's looking at actual technical documents and requirements and how those all feed through. But then what the lifecycle part does when you move from a PDM to a PLM is it actually manages the lifecycle of what that's doing. So how are we migrating from draft into release through sign-off processes? How are we looking at how the release of that can then trigger other workflows? So there's something else um, as, well, what's typically called a triad um, of PLM, MES and ERP. I'm sure we're gonna get onto aspects of those, so I'll not define them yet. Um, But the execution system for the manufacturing execution system to start with, once you've triggered a release of a product to be produced, it moves across and then gets managed within the execution system. So it's the life cycle of how it all fits together to go, right, when should we actually allow somebody to trigger an order so we'll trigger the thing of, go produce 10 of these widgets or go produce 10,000 of these widgets. And it's that life cycle then you're trying to manage. At least that's where we're coming from, from my areas of research. Martin, do you agree or disagree?
0: So let's just be uh, clear quickly. That's, it's from a manufacturing background, right? This is for factories.
1: Yeah, fundamentally, so I, I, I'm I seeing as we are becoming more diverse in the way in which we include different skills into our, into our construction sector, we are seeing a lot more of an experience base from manufacturing, automotive, aerospace sector, kind of walking into big capital projects in construction and, and kind of going, oh my God, what are you lads up to? And ladies, um, this isn't right. We've done configuration point control before around products. Uh, I, I think there's an oversimplification of infrastructure and completeness, you know, be it buildings, roads, rail, anything to say that a sole product view is 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 very easily achieved. Um, but yeah, that's where they're, they're pushing in. Um, I go big on the configuration control piece. So if we wanted to say where's the place for systems engineers in looking at associations of functions, and so functions can be technical functions let's say you know your mechanical engineers against your civils if we have to get really kind of to the bottom of it um and looking at coordination and configuration and control points um between them um does it work well in the sector i think we're we're, we're testing it right now but you you can see the vision you can see why people are putting it on the table you know if we say the product document management is not too dissimilar from you know our EDMSs that sit within our you know common data environments then yeah maybe we're on the same trajectory.
0: And I think that's a really good point because the built environment construction we have you know BIM building information modeling and uh, that evolved in terms of the information management aspects of that that evolved from electronic document management systems, fundamentally. You know, this is about version control. This is about who has the right to upload documents and what they can be used for uh, and all those sorts of things. So we're bringing in different domains who are facing the same problems and have solved them in slightly different ways and called them slightly different things. But fundamentally, what we're dealing with here is complexity. This is about managing a complex supply chain it might be internal but even inside organizations often you know the design teams talk to the engineers less than they should and that happens inside organizations and in complex supply chains that are more common in construction so i think it's really interesting to see that even way back when there's some overlap between these these other subjects effectively and what we seem to be seeing now is as these sectors are becoming more digitally mature. Let's assume they are becoming more digitally mature because that is certainly the message that we're getting, that these worlds are starting to overlap and we're talking different languages and we're talking uh, about the same thing with a different name or with a different emphasis, maybe even with different standards underneath them. So I think that's a really complex area. So I do want to uh, dig into that a little bit. So let's do, do a little bit on the old BIM so you know in terms of how does BIM overlap with digital twins right so building information modeling better information management better information modeling better business information I've heard BIM be retranslated many different ways and my personal view is because that happened because in my view it was really difficult to innovate and bring in new technology into the construction sector. So it looked like this 3D modeling stuff was getting some leverage. So suddenly everything became BIM. Suddenly, serve 3D survey, 3D scanning, laser, um, laser scanning, all these sorts of things have a BIM aspect. Um, information management, you know, how are we going to manage those files? That has an aspect. So it it became this um trying to think of a better word than bandwagon but there's certainly not a more appropriate word um so 3d modeling was in there 3d modeling with data about what you're building is in there but so is this kind of file management aspect so in terms of digital twins and the overlap there the original kind of definition of digital twins is it's just about having a digital replica of something that you are going to make rather than making a physical one so certainly for NASA, that was about prototyping. So having a prototype of your uh, shuttle, having a prototype of your moon lander or whatever it is. And that space is already taken in construction. So when that concept came to us, we we're like, whoa, 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 you can have operational management, you can have that that stuff, but this, this is taken. And it, it kind of became quite, um, Tribal almost. Well, there's certainly a reactionary view that it's like, oh God, this is a, you know, we've done this, we don't need to do this again. And I think that's what's really interesting about digital twins is that it is an overview, it is a concept. Nobody is saying, you know, we have this complete end to end digital twin that I've seen, but that we are trying to twin aspects of our process, access of uh, aspects of what we are designing and engineering and aspects of things that we are managing over time you know kind of going through that life cycle as it were and so this has brought a lot of these things to light that you know we've tried in the built environment to take ideas from other sectors before you know lean concepts came in and were somewhat haphazardly introduced agile is coming in and and these sorts of things are being absorbed but digital twin seems to be something that sits above that and i find it very interesting to see how the different cultures approach digital twins so the construction sectors tried to define digital twins to a very detailed level very quickly because that seems to be something that we do we need to classify we need to understand so i wonder kind of putting let's put bim and plm next to each other because it does feel like you know it started as something a thing document management 3d modeling and then these extra aspects keep coming in and i wonder if there are areas where there's just no chance for overlap you know this isn't going to work and areas where it's they're effectively the same thing and how does that kind of Uh, How do we simplify that for for listeners to understand that maybe you actually might understand a lot more about BIM or PLM or digital twins than you might actually think?
2: So I actually think if we start going down the train of thought of this won't work and certain data formats, structures, methodologies, aren't part of the infrastructure we're trying to create, we will alienate people from that marketplace. And I think actually that's one of the last things we should be doing. We should be embracing the diversity of everything that's going on, because even if you're a small cog or small fish in a massive pond or whatever metaphor you want to use, you are part of that ecosystem. If you are given, still over email, a 2D drawing and you've got to go and produce 10 widgets for a large asset owner or just provide some seals for a pump and whatever else, and that's your world, you're still part of that supply chain. You are still part of producing something physically so it can enable a much bigger infrastructure that we need worldwide, globally. And I think regardless of data structure, process, methodology, you have to understand or at least start to get the high level of meaning of how you fit into that and the smarter ways you can be working with it. And I think that's the the bigger challenge is, you're using BIM, you're using CAD, you're using PLM, you're using a Word document or even just notepad to describe and put things down digitally or on paper. There's going to be better ways of working. And I think if we can't articulate and have the larger vendors support the smaller players in this space, by understanding how they fit into it and help them mature, we're failing them.
0: Interesting, so it's about understanding there's this understanding your part in the system, but, and we've hit on a really core thing here, there is a big data issue underneath this.
2: So what I think actually, and it's why PLM is doing really well, is it embraces the diversity of different CAD formats. Like you don't just need to support BIB. So you can be in there with Katia and Solid Edge and JTs from NX. And you can still support some Step 242, which is taking off again, which is an ISO standard. So everyone can support it. They've all got issues. They've all got different flavors. And then you translate and have the not true interoperability because you're still just point saluting to something else. So It's just a big rat's nest uh, and big snakes nest in terms of it's just absolute chaos in there. And you're always trying to get back to one dominant format that you're happy and everyone can support, but the actual system, the actual mechanisms, can support any of those formats. It could be more of a blob, or it could really actually understand what's in there, but you're still embracing the diversity of these different formats. And I think that's where it's doing well.
1: So I've got a real real life experience of of exactly what what John was just saying. So kind of major energy client. Um, procured really early on uh, a PLM support service, fantastically supported actually as well, like the methodology of the technology firm that were delivering that PLM was was really expansive and, and really focused on discovery for the benefit of the client. So I, I like that, I like that attitude. I think that's what you need to see see more of in the sector. Um, and interestingly for that vendor then, so they had a core service of what the PLM achieves today and what it doesn't achieve, and they're very vocal in what it doesn't achieve. They know it doesn't in- achieve currently clear configuration into the BIM process and workflows but they're absolutely looking at that, that problem statement right and the way in which they will describe that problem statement is we need to understand from a program view when we have our major configuration elements our points you know our, our big contractual milestones what we might describe as the REBA gates in, in the BIM world but you know what's the delivery gate that, that means the manufacturing process for the bigger infrastructure we're looking at um, and then the evidence. So exactly what John's saying. So the functions of evidence that we put into the PLM are, are much more diverse than what we've ever put into a common data environment. So, you know, kind of fragment programme schedules away from the documents, which we fragment away from from the models. So it's about kind of keeping those those together. Um, but I tell you what's really, really clear as well. And I've seen this. Again, across many programs, it's really a shame when you can't name the programs, but they are there and they're real. Trust me, I'm not making this up. I believe you. Um, right. Is is that the fundamental gap? I feel in the ways of working that is supported by the standards around BIM. the configuration and control piece is the ability to really have a project team get around a single mission statement which they can all see they can all touch they can all feel and they can understand when they need to contribute to it so in that BIM way of working what do we do we put ourselves together into what do we call them interdisciplinary review meetings so we're using meetings and events to drive configuration because the technology is not quite there yet yeah so we use human driven elements meetings events to get the technical disciplines around the problem statement because we can't easily achieve that in the technology that we've got supporting us in the BIM lifecycle. Now, you know, drivers in the PLM world will say, well, wow, you could do that all within the PLM system and it's much more easily controlled. You know, John's talked about putting your Capella systems engineer or MBSC kind of model engineering approaches into PLM and, and facilitating those. So th- there's definite gaps, right? And it's then Henry to the point of, I'm going to say this for the first time ever, and I think we're many minutes in, digital twin use case in the construction sector that I see a lot well, of, hey. is that um, we, we generally use the term digital twin in our sector to, to represent the gaps that we can't achieve. So because we can't achieve effective configuration, and let's ignore the fact we know PLM exists, if we didn't know PLM exists, we go, that's a digital twin use case. You know, we can't effectively put this model data set with that core stream program data set. So we need to leverage technology to give us a representation of the thing we need to put forward, a we'll call this a digital twin use case. And and we see that in a lot of plays, you know, so that digital twin use case so that we think is pivotal and primary for the construction sector actually isn't a use case if you look at it through the life cycle of PLM because it's kind of achieved already,
0: so. Interesting, because I think yeah. the, yeah, just being at the you know on the ISO 19650 being a standards nerd lots of process there is effectively replacing document management and the output is still the same it's called an information model but it's pdfs and yeah. it's often 2d drawings you know you you can technically get away with with that and the only way of exchanging data is through the ifc the industry foundation classes which is from building smart and the the largest most well-funded effectively interoperability solution yeah. that exists in construction and there are lots of smaller ones that are out there and um, you know in prop tech they are uh, developing their owns for you know their own for building management and asset management and those sorts of things so i think it's really key to see that effectively as things stand right now in bim there is one solution to rule them all and if you can't make it work you have to either acknowledge that and find uh, a, a solution that can work around that or you end up basically everything ends up back in spreadsheets or it ends up in the classic uh, proxy uh, data. Uh, being, It ends up being proxy data. So it loses a lot of that um, dynamism because you've just had to squeeze it into a file format. And I think that's really, this is kind of at the heart of the issue of what, what we can learn here is that there is a history across all sectors that, bring lots of people together to design to, there's a history of, for all sectors that have to design, engineer and produce things, that they once upon a time did it with documents, and did it by hand and drew it. And we can see that there is a future where, well, actually it's all a lot better with data and I'm not really sure that we wanna be using paper because we lose so much and when we make edits, it's a nightmare, rework is an issue. And so that's the direction of travel. And there have to be lots of expert people involved, employed to do that. And, it, you know, it's what you've been talking about, Martin. It's configuration.
1: Yeah. So here's a, here's a little word of warning, right? And, and, and it's a good, effective challenge. And I completely respect the work they've done so far. If you are mastering standards which are pointing us towards a vision of creating more documents in response to how we do effectively well in BIM. We're kind of going down the wrong path, aren't we? So we know we want to be data centric. So we're going to ask you to write a load of document responses into this programme of work that says how you're actually going to achieve being data centric. But we're a million miles away from a data model. What am I talking about? Here I've written an EIR and I expect to see a BIM execution plan back and here is an asset set Mm -hmm. of strategies and I expect to see an asset data model come back. But two-thirds, if not three-quarters of that element of work is writing a documented response back to how you're going to act instead Mm -hmm. of a a data-centric response to what is core and and needed. So there's a warning I think we have to kind of be really mindful of. Let's not create industries in just writing things. That's not the intent that makes us less productive and more wasteful you know, let's get to the core of the matter. And that's being a little bit more focused on the data model and century. And,
2: and but we're seeing this all of the time, just around, normally in software, you have two panels. Um, you've got the rich text, as I'll call it, of the word document in the middle. And then you've got these metadata fields, data dictionaries, settings, drop down menus on the right. And the bit that the computer reads is the metadata. It doesn't have the understanding of what you're actually putting in the rich text. So anything you're putting in there, arguably being completely crude, is a waste of effort. Mm. Because when you want the intelligence in the system, you want it in the metadata, the classifications, the taxonomies, the the ways of looking at it. Because actually, in a bit of an example, I was looking at an automotive requirement. And this is apparently on a live production system. Um as what they were saying if we're struggling with requirements engineering, right back to the the, um, areas of that position, because that's where it starts, you're trying to define what's the use cases primary one, but also to meet that use case, we have this requirement. And their requirement was stating, um, suspension is a really good thing to have in a car, because it allows you to dampen the forces that you feel over a bumpy road. That was their requirement. It wasn't, we have to have suspension with a certain damping force or stiffness or whatever else. It was a description of what suspension was. So then I said to them, okay, what asset or thing would you have to have to meet that requirement? But, oh, we need suspension. I went, no, you've just described what suspension is, not that you would like suspension for this particular vehicle. And it, they just went, oh, yeah, there's a lot more semantic behind actual requirements. Because then actually when you're saying, I do need a suspension system, well then why when you look up the model that you're associating to it to make sure that is part of the final asset you're producing, is it actually classified as a suspension system? There is no point putting the rich text in there saying we need suspension or actually the metadata, and then you go off and find, I don't know, a pump or a wheel or s- some sort of valve system. There needs to be a much closer link. And mechanism of the computer systems actually supporting engineers rather Mm. than engineers needing to write it to justify to their line manager because that's what the line managers expect a nice section of text fully describing the requirement with a few images maybe with a few diagrams with a little bit of metadata afterwards to try and produce something which another engineer can use in another department and that link is far too often broken
0: so this is a question about complexity again and abstraction in in, in a sense so the requirements for buildings and built assets can get suitably and similarly lost in the weeds and it just becomes uh, an exercise in doing what is expected you know we expected it to look like this so we do it like that Mm. and so that comes through in the requirements so we expect that if we are running a project to create a thing that requires documentation so we're going to create documentation and then somebody will do something with that but what we seem to be moving away from here is taking requirements as documentation taking something that is um, just written down and explained that isn't integrated into the process and I think that is certainly um, the big problem that uh, BIM and all actually technology is having uh, in the built environment is it's very often tacked on the side so you need something central and we've all touched on it but I want to come to this because I think this connects all of these elements from PLM to BIM even GIS into digital twins, not saying that this makes them all digital twins, because this is effectively something else. It's a data model. It's data science. It's data engineering. And I think that has been the, the elephant in the room here for this entire conversation is the, I don't want to call them a single industry, but IT, software, data. But I think data is at that core. So what does that look like? What does bringing all these things together look like i'm really I'm really trying to hint here that I want you to talk about data models. um and and how would that help us across sectors understand our requirements, whether we've done what we need to in terms of having a data-centric approach and then actually achieving better outcomes?
1: i would I want to like I'm gonna almost like point the question at because This is where he's a genius, and I'm almost the fool, right? So, I'm going to tell you the way I watched it from the industry, John. The industry said, if we chuck everything into the data lake, we'll be absolutely fine, because then we'll find everything, yeah. And I was like, uh-huh. OK, that seems big and probably quite complicated to do for many different formats of stuff. Um, I feel the industry is now getting to the point where we're understanding we can make associations through data streams and and, and data sets. And maybe that's where we need to be going more. Uh, what what are your views, John?
2: Well I'm gonna ask you both a question and put you. Yeah. Both oh wow, look at this. How wow. much data do you think we actually use of what is produced?
0: Oh, percentage?
1: I'm fundamentally gonna say probably less than ten.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I as low as zero. As low as zero. Certainly Five, specific seven. example. Specific example. Dirty great big construction process, right? We need a complete IFC When all of that. Goes over the fence, or even a digital twin, you know, and actually, you know, a dynamic system that is in databases and has data structures, goes over the fence into a different stage, effectively to a new group of people, to operations, and they don't know what to do with it. And so they just start again with what they need.
2: So the problem is, you're both industrialists, and you've not accounted for the amount of data that's produced on a film and streamed over Netflix, and that's used once, and it's still classified as being used. So wow. if you count for all the social media and just pinging back of images and video, which is still apparently counted as data being used, on average, of the all of the data produced, we use thirty-two percent.
1: Oh, hang on! I thought you were talking about the infrastructure sector. Are you talking well, globally? Well just in general, yeah. In general, okay, all right. Then, in, then the next question would be even better. Of and in the infrastructure sector, how no, I'm to that. Should... <laughs> oh, no. you peaked me there. That's unfair.
0: No, that it's was great. Handy. He did. I don't know. He had a little grin on his face, and he he knew what he was doing, and he was looking off to the side because he just googled it, and <laughs>
2: well, it was on a previous slide. I'd already got access to.
0: Um, uh, okay. But um,
2: it, it's it's the point just around even with. Social media and all of the consumer data that we use, consume, produce, TikTok, X, whatever else, we still only use about a third. And, and that, for me, is the issue just around how are we getting back towards only producing data that we actually want to even define and say there's a potential use. So it means something. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have. And I think actually, Henry, you to around the issue slightly of, it's not even just data. It's just the whole information management approach is lacking, be that the skills and competence needed by people, be that the recommendations of particular standards, which goes, you must have somebody who understands information management in every single organization and who is responsible. And ideally someone else different, who is also accountable. There should be two people responsible and accountable for what is doing that. And until we get that message across to directors and the the higher ups of they understand enough to go data is at the part of what we are doing um, and how we are going to be driving data driven decisions, I think we're still going to be struggling.
0: Um, Can can you just uh, say data is at the heart for me, please? You said data is at the part. At the heart,
1: John's face. John's
0: Data is at the heart. Is is the delivery I need. Okay.
2: So data is at the heart of everything that we're doing to drive the information, Um, and it's it's that information that is then driving decisions. So love them or hate them, Tesla. They always come up in these sorts of conversations. I was walk. uh, I was watching a Walker Reynolds um YouTube video just around his understanding of why Tesla have been so successful. The reason actually they've been able to leapfrog the automotive sector is not because they're an automotive company. It's because they're a data first company. And when they were looking at deploying systems and how they worked better and smarter with data, rather than deploying what was commercially available as an ERP system, they developed their own. They said nothing on the market handles data in the way to be fully extensible, so they developed their own ERP system.
1: I'm going to do the controversial and say, Data is the heart, people are the soul. <laughs> uh, and I mean this, I fundamentally mean this right. So, being in this progressive world of trying to deliver design or kind of digital transformation into organisations. When I was a 20 year old, I thought I'd be able to make the world change in, you know, I don't know, like a month, probably. In all reality now, I seem to be falling back on, it's like a four year cycle. It seems to be like a four year cycle where we say something smart and intentionally good. And then by the time we've kind of adopted, scaled and, and, and deployed, Seems to be four years. Uh, I've, I've got two two data points on that, right? Only two, but anyway, I've, that's the geek theory of four-year cycles for uh, adoption and change. It's terrible. Um, fundamentally, though, I will say this, you know, when we try and, you know, Henry, you pulled out the point of a digital twin is created with a use case that's driving capital adoption that we think is going to be useful for the operators, hand out over the fence to the operators, and it's it's just fundamentally not. Um, I think we're, we're we're getting much much better on that now. I'm seeing enough presentations that are operator focused. Even Atkins Realis have focused twin into our operations function for kind of light rail in in North America, um, and that's that's going well. PLM, if we were to pull it back, I I'm I'm going to say something. I I really position a lot of the twinning functions is a really effective UX and UI play. So if you do have the opportunity to get into the PLM system, you're going to see they're completely hard. They, they are not massively user friendly and um, to scale those across organizations does take a fair old whack of business change and adoption to get there. Um, and, and they still don't do many of the big dynamic elements of twin for simulation, you know, twin for complex integration and simulation functions. So the interface is still there and every time I see the twin play it just looks prettier it looks easier when we've got an interface and board that's you know bringing together the data sets and the data models in a a user-centric way that that's that's driving it so I I definitely will robustly say that a digital twin use case or the, the position of digital twin in the market is there and it's valuable and it's focused on how we make the data model accessible to the people all right
2: Completely agree. And I think that's where people get it wrong. It's not that everything must be focused on the data. We can stop talking to all the colleagues because it's going to be there in the database and accessible. It's like, for me, it's about how we accelerate innovations and that innovations comes from people. You can throw various bits of smart tech at it, but at the end of the day, I would love to just sit in a room with people and go, what if we did this? and just Mm -hmm. bounce ideas off each other, and then have the system supporting us, like Jarvis, um, just going, well, you can't do that, because actually, if you change the material, you're going to cause issues for the operators, because they're going to have to change their pumps every two years instead of five years. Like, you've got that tacit knowledge actually in the system, not in people's heads, not in people who you'd never even thought to have a conversation with, but supporting organizations and supporting innovators to do as good a job as we can when we have these big, massive, wicked problems we're trying to solve today.
0: So it seems to me like the difference here is because of the historical context, PLM, BIM were created to solve and implement existing processes. You know, this is how it works here. This is what we need to do. That is well-established. And we're starting to realize as we try and smash together different Pieces of technology that are being used in different areas, and it was never an issue because they weren't trying to share data. Um, And we're trying to create data that is useful to a wider group of people. That, like you say, this is actually about people. And how does technology get out of the way of people and support them? Which is a quite different view, I think, from a traditional approach, which is people are a problem, they need to be given strict rules strict processes to follow. And then when they follow that, we will get a good result. And you need to needed to do that because there was a lack of transparency and you didn't, and a lack of accountability in some cases. You didn't know who was doing what. You didn't know that the work had been done to a, a good level. And if we can take those sorts of safeguards um into a a place that is Uh, much more holistic so we can understand these things from a wider context and we can probably understand it better. And that's where digital twins come in. So I'm quite hopeful that actually what we've highlighted today is that this is about progression. This is about changing the approach. So digital twin is is not this technology uh, solution. It is about putting people at the heart of development and actually all innovation not just digital twins so do you guys have any final thoughts because i think it's about time we wrapped up i i feel like i've learned a lot today
1: i've really enjoyed talking about plm today we have avoided something at scale and maybe it's another podcast of the future or maybe it's a debate and discussion but it's the view of product life cycle management against asset life cycle management are they one? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Do they conflict? The assets looks at fleets, you know, and products looks at the individual? And so I've learned tons. I always love being in a room with both of you. John's academic brain and knowledge and model function is just so great to listen to. So thank you for having me as well. John, thank you. over to you.
2: I'm gonna go down a completely, uh different aspect of it. I'd, I'd love to be back if if there's enough interest around asset side, but I think how that compares to the process, it is a completely different train of thought as well. And Henry mentioned it there briefly, and I will tee up for something else if, if, if there's genuine interest here, but just around BIM is good to establish a process if there is no other process. At least try and say this is something that we could follow. And I think that's what's happened. Mm. But actually, there's things like, is it BPM uh, BPMN? is like a very well standard process modeling using UML that exists. That's what people use in manufacturing in various regards. So I think there's whole areas of twinning the assets, twinning the processes and how that all plays to support people coming back to the conversation we've just had is really key. And that's something that again, we need to explore collectively all together to go right. We need to embrace the diversity of different trains of thoughts, to really get the information people want at their fingertips so they so then as individuals can make best decisions for the organizations we work in
0: great well thank you so much martin john it's been a pleasure you've been listening to the digital twin fan club podcast with me henry Femby taylor and we might be back with more on this lots of threads to follow up there thanks guys it's been great
1: thanks henry Thanks. thanks everyone thanks for listening